Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the Wednesday, April 17, 2019 edition of our little weather get-together. And we uh, welcome you tonight. And I did not write the show number down, so I think it's like 273, but don't quote me on that. But uh, we are happy to have you tonight. Uh, we'll tell you, uh, last week we kind of teased to uh, this show being a recap of the April 16, 2011 tornado outbreak for North Carolina. And we've kind of tabled that because we had our own little severe weather mess over the past weekend. So that's what we're going to be discussing tonight. We do have with us Jamie Morrow, who is a, a meteorologist at the National Weather Service in Raleigh, North Carolina. And we also have Warren Causey on, who is part of the Sirens Project. And he and Chris went out into uh, the Deep South to chase these monsters on Saturday. And so we're going to have Chris and Warren talk about their chase. And we're going to have Jamie come on and kind of talk about, A, what happened in his area, but also how the uh, National Weather Service offices get prepped or get geared up for these uh, bigger severe weather events because it's not really like a regular day in the office. There's uh, many things that, that take place uh, during these severe weather outbreaks. So we are going to have uh, Jamie on to talk a little bit about that as well. So this is a live broadcast, and we'd love to hear your reports of what you experienced this weekend, or if you have any questions for our guest, uh, you're probably watching right now on Facebook Live or Periscope or the YouTube uh, live page. And all you got to do is drop a comment or a question in the little uh toolbar or taskbar there and we will monitor those throughout the show and um, we will ask them if uh, if you have any questions and if you're listening on the podcast towards the end of the show we'll let our guests uh, promote their social media accounts and you can tweet the uh, tweet your questions to them so again we are going to be talking about the uh, severe weather that the uh, Carolinas and all of the south really saw over the weekend but before we do that I'm going to toss it to James Briarton who's going to give us an update on the uh, latest I guess tornadoes confirmed tornadoes, uh, James, that we saw here in the Carolinas over the past weekend. Yeah, it was a very busy weekend, Scotty, and we're not just talking about Sunday into Monday. Our first special report of live severe weather coverage actually kicked off Friday. Then we had another round on Saturday. And then, as you know, we were on the air for several hours on Sunday through the early hours of Monday morning. Let me pop this up. This is just a look at every local storm report that was submitted Unreleased by the National Weather Service between Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday across our region. Now, not all of these are necessarily confirmed tornadoes per se, but as I zoom in, you can just at least understand the magnitude of the system we were dealing with because you can see each and every one of the different warnings that was issued. The red, of course, being tornadoes, yellow being severe thunderstorm, where we had reports of uh, wind damage and hail, and then we also had mixed in here in green uh, flood warnings and advisories that were issued uh, from Charlotte down across the uh, triangle. Uh, again, this uh, all started on Friday. Uh, I think we actually kicked off with a tornado warning in Jamie's neck of the woods where they have since conducted a storm survey out of the Raleigh office there and concluded that an EF0 tornado touched down just south of Raven Rock State Park on the evening of the 12th. And then we kicked coverage off on Saturday with uh, a few tornado warnings that went through Scotty's area. He's off camera waving right now. We're going to talk extensively about that. We were back on the air on Sunday with not one, not two, not three, but four different tornado warnings that went across Surrey County in northern North Carolina near the border of Virginia. 
and also had a few uh, reports of damage back across the Greenville-Spartanburg jurisdiction of things, including a now-confirmed tornado in Simpsonville. You can take a look here at some of the information they released where this tornado uh, caused shingle, gutter, and damage to various homes. It was an EF0 damage with maximum winds of 65 miles an hour, but as it moved through Elder Park and some other neighboring neighborhoods, it also caused damage to dozens of large diameter trees, which were uprooted, and large branches and trunks were snapped. Uh, one tree fell on a home and a trampoline was lifted hundreds of feet into the air from an adjacent home. Intensity peaked at an EF1 with max winds of 100 miles an hour. We actually have a clip from our coverage on Sunday night as we were watching this storm make it through the area. Take a listen. Talking about another one in Simpsonville, possible rotation developing along yeah. this cold front. So Look at the Columbia radar. It's more defined. I'm looking at looking at it from Columbia, and and it's definitely it's definitely got a little rotation in the mid levels. You you look at it a little bit closer, and you know, and I mean, ah, you look at that little little hooky poo right there around Simpsonville here. Uh, you know, uh, I that's that's interesting, and we'll we'll tilt up and we'll kind of take a look at this. We'll see if this gets any better to find, but there's definitely a mezzo up there. Um you know, a good call by Evan to look at the Columbia radar. There's definitely a mezzo up there when looking at it from Columbia's point of view. And uh you know, I mean uh, yeah, I, I I don't know about TDS, but I, I definitely think that uh you know, there's 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 something that that could be interesting. Very much so, and that's the voice of Jared Smith who was joined with Evan Fisher and Scotty Powell during that 10 o'clock hour of coverage on Sunday. Let me bring in Scotty because, Scotty, uh, not only were we on the air for a long period of time, but you yourself were reporting on this very intimately as not once but twice had to actually take cover and move to your self, uh, safe place this weekend. Yeah, you know, um, I'll be honest with you. I, I just left the Foothills Weather Network, so I've... Uh, last week, I, I'm committing all, all my time to Carolina Weather Group, but I was saying that to say that I've, I've never really been home during a severe weather event, uh, at least in, since 2011. And so I've, I've never really had to go into my safe place here at the house. So it was kind of crazy uh, doing that because I've always been at work or, or been covering from, from my office. So uh, it was uh, intense. Um, you know, I, I don't remember um, the last time that that we had back-to-back -back days of uh, severe weather uh, producing tornado warnings. In fact, I, I don't know if that's ever happened here, but uh, we just uh, gathered our stuff. I, you know, I, I knew coming into the weekend that uh, severe weather was was possible in the area, and so we, we gathered our supplies, and we had a plan uh, if, uh, if the case was to be that we had to go into our, our downstairs closet uh, because of these tornado warnings. And so the Saturday storm... I was actually more worried about the, uh, the the radar was showing some pretty large hailstones, so I had had my Jeep out in the open, so I had to make sure that um, that it was pulled under under cover. And so, uh, if you were watching Saturday, I was out of breath because I was running outside and running back in to help uh, Jared with the coverage. And then uh, Sunday was just a whirlwind. Uh, it just you know we had our our, our tornado warning at three o'clock on Saturday, and it. It was like three o'clock on Sunday, and then later this Sunday night we had a another severe thunderstorm that was really showing rotation, and we had a, a possible tornado in the warning. It was a tornado tagged storm, so 
Uh, you know, we thought, man, we might have to go into uh, the safe place for a third time, but thankfully we didn't. But we had our plan, and uh, it was executed uh, precisely, and nothing really crazy came up. Uh, we was able to to join in at one point from our safe shelter, but uh, as you can see the video here, um, I live about three miles north of where this is being shot right now. This is downtown Morganton. A lot of trees and power lines down, but uh, thankfully um, the only uh, – buildings that received damage was an abandoned house that a tree had fallen on. So uh, th thankfully, uh, no one really in our area received a lot of uh, property damage. It was just trees and, and power lines and, and the city workers were out Sunday and Monday. We, we had a lot of roads closed even on Monday, uh, 24 hours after the storm from, from all this uh, debris and cleanup. So thankfully, uh, we didn't have a tornado here, but it was crazy. And, you know, um, now uh, I know what it's like to, to go home, be here at home uh, when a tornado warning is issued. So uh, hopefully we don't have to worry about that for the rest of the year. But uh, if this spring has any indication, we, we may have to do that again at some point. So. Scotty, let's take a look at the video from Sunday where you actually joined us from your safe place. Guys, I'm, I'm going to jump, jump off, off, so I'll keep my camera up, and um, if anything crazy happens, you'll see it first, I guess, but we're going to go uh, seek shelter, and I'll be back uh, momentarily. Scotty Powell, thank you very much. Best to you guys. We'll check in with you after the storm. Uh, we will continue to monitor what is uh, this live shot inside uh, Scotty's residence there in Morganton as he has now moved uh, he and his family to a safe location. Hey, James, I'm, I'm here in my safe place. I, I, it's probably a little echoey. I'm on my phone, but I can tell you uh, I live uh, just a couple of miles, about two miles north of downtown Morganton, and the winds are pretty gusty. You can hear them even down here in the basement, uh, probably uh, I don't know how gusty they are, but if you radar estimates here, you... of 60 miles an hour, Scotty. Yeah. So you, you can probably hear it here. Um, uh, the rotation, the, the potential tornado may track just south of my location. So I'm going to watch it on radar for the next little bit. And I may, uh, come back up into my office and join you guys. But again, I just wanted to check in here, uh, from the safe place. This is where, uh, this is where I seek shelter. Uh, this is an interior, uh, bathroom and, and closet in my basement. Uh, so we're here. I got my dog with me. Um, I'll, I'll show you her. We're here. So we are uh, we're going to be here for ne next little bit uh, until we feel like the uh, the rotation has, has passed through. through. So. All right. So uh, and so we were in, in our safe place. Uh, the dog, we had all our supplies and uh, it's just uh, something even here in, in North Carolina, we don't see as many tornadoes as they do in the deep south or in the Midwest. But it's always good to practice, uh, practice these things and make sure that you have that kit ready to go. So if uh, the time ever comes that a warning is issued for you, you can just grab that bag and, and head into your safe place. So uh, thankfully, um, nothing happened here, but we're ready for, for the next one if it was to come. But again, um, the tornado's warnings were issued, but uh, the National Weather Service did come to the area and uh, determined it to be straight line winds. And, and like I tell people, I think we even mentioned this several times on our live broadcast, is no matter if the wind's rotating or if it's all blowing in one direction, if it's blowing 70, 80 miles per hour rotating or, or in a straight line, it's going to do damage. And so uh, it's always good to uh, to get in your safe place and just ride out the storm and, and let it pass. And hopefully, uh, hopefully this was a good reminder to folks in our area that we still have uh, tornadoes in our area and, and damaging thunderstorms. And next time, everyone will be prepared and uh, head to their safe place. So, James, it's something I hope I don't have to experience the rest of this year, at least. 
Absolutely, Scotty. And, uh, you know, we're a little bit later this hour. We're going to be talking about yet another threat of severe weather that is going to be impacting our region on Friday. You're going to want to stay tuned for that. But uh, until then, Scotty, I'll send it back over to you as we continue to take a look at these pictures as we will throughout the hour and continue our conversation now about the weekend's events, not only here in the Carolinas, but across the entire southeast. Scotty. Yeah, definitely. And I, w I want to bring in Jamie. Um, Jamie uh, Morrow is a meteorologist at the National Weather Service in Raleigh. And uh, for those who watch our show uh, regularly and, and listen to our podcast, you may, you may remember Jamie from last year. Uh, at that time, he was in the uh, Blacksburg office. So, Jamie, uh, my, my question to you is, as you guys are seeing this, just like we are, we're all meteorologists and, and we look at these weather models days out. How uh, does the National Weather Service, how does your office prepare for bigger weather events like this? Because when you see days like Friday, Saturday, Sunday with tornadoes and severe thunderstorms in your area, I'm sure you guys have to ramp up your staff and, and get things uh, all coordinated so everything there works flawlessly. Yeah, you're exactly right. There's a lot of preparations that go to make sure that we're ready. And, uh, you know, those plans aren't always in place. At the National Weather Service, we're working 24-7, 365 days a year, and we have products due at certain times. And that workload only increases as the weather gets worse and worse. So um, being able to actually fulfill a complete severe weather event, we need to pull two, three, four additional bodies in um, on top of the uh, bodies we already have in place. So during a high-end severe weather event, like a tropical system, or in this case, a severe weather outbreak, uh, we could actually have as many as eight people working at a time. And keep in mind, we only have about 16 meteorologists on staff. So if you have a long duration event, uh, we're, we're, <laughs> we've got people working 12, 15 hours at a time just to make sure um, that we're always maintaining our weather watch and always prepared for the next storm system to, to, to come up. And, and we still have those daily duties. We have to issue an aviation forecast every six hours at minimum in order for pilots to continue taking off from area airports. And that's at every weather service at every major airport across the country. So there's always a baseline duties we have to do. And anytime the weather gets a little worse, we have to really staff up to make sure we're ready and prepared. And Jamie, so tell us, um, I know you guys had a few tornadoes in your area, but before we get into that, I want to kind of talk about the uh, watch and warning procedure, and then we can kind of go into the tornadoes you guys had. Um, the, the National Weather Service, your office only issues the warnings. The actual tornado watch uh, most of the time comes from the Storm Prediction Center. So to kind of talk about uh, I know you guys have an open line of communication, especially during these severe weather events. So kind of talk about that process and the coordination that you guys have with the Storm Prediction Center and your uh, not only that, but the uh, local weather offices uh, around you. Yeah, it's a pretty confusing process, actually, especially when it comes to actually issuing some of the watches. Uh, so the watches are uh, introduced, at least by the Storm Prediction Center. We get on a massive conference call uh, once the Storm Prediction Center notices an area that they might need a watch in the future. We get on a large conference call that includes every office that will potentially be in the watch. And we have a discussion trying to figure out, all right, which areas need to be in it, which ones can we wait on, and which areas are we a little bit too uncertain about to include. So anytime that happens, the Storm Prediction Center and all of the local meteorologists get together, figure out which areas need the watch, and go from there. Then when the threat is actually ongoing or soon to happen, that's when the warning processes start, and that's all at the local office level. And that 
procedure is anywhere from two to three people watching radar, trying to figure out how strong the storms are, collecting data from our Skywarn storm spotters and local media partners that are providing some of the data and storm reports to us and determining whether or not a warning may be needed. So it's a bit confusing, but the Storm Prediction Center has a large aspect in the watch process. Uh, it does take a local expertise into account anytime there's a watch issued. And without our blessing, a watch can't be issued for our area. So the local warning forecast office still has the say eventually in the watch uh, issuance. That's good to know. I did not know that part. So I learned something tonight. Um, one thing is, as we were on air on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday um, covering the severe weather, uh, we noticed a lot of severe thunderstorm warnings popped up with the tag tornado possible. And so um, that's not always been the case with severe thunderstorm warnings. I mean, in, in the text, it may say severe thunderstorm warnings can sometimes produce tornadoes. But I know over the past couple of years, we've started seeing these warnings come out and it'll say um, hazard 70 mile per hour wind, quarter size hail, whatever, and the possibility of a tornado. So uh, talk to us about that. That was something we was trying to communicate to our listeners and our viewers. Uh, but you guys in that office, and one thing, uh, Jamie, your your area is part of this is, as a bunch of North Carolina is, there's some radar dead spots in the state. So uh, that tornado possible tag and those warnings means there could be a tornado in it. We just can't always see it from the radar. So kind of talk about that process and and, and what this tornado possible tag means. Yeah, you're spot on there. So I think it was 2010 to 2014. It was pretty recent. The National Weather Service has implemented different levels of tornado type warnings. Uh, and one of those was introduced pretty recently, and that's the tornado possible tag. Uh, and those are included on severe thunderstorm warnings because, you know, really tornadoes, especially those really short term, really weak spin ups can occur in any thunderstorm at any time of the year. So if we threw out a tornado warning on every one of those storms that could possibly produce a tornado, uh, we would have uh, hundreds of different tornado warnings every month almost, especially in the spring season. So one thing we try to do is save those tornado warnings for when we're certain a tornado threat is possible. Um, and one way we were Something able to do that is by introducing the tornado possible, possible tag. And that tag basically says, look, you see some broad rotation. This storm may tighten up and require a tornado warning. But right now, the confidence that uh, based on our instruments isn't quite there. So that's the severe thunderstorm with tornado possible uh, scenario. We also have a tornado warning based on radar reflectivity. That is not a confirmed tornado. That's just a tornado is likely or soon to happen type warning. We can confirm a tornado based on spotter reports. Uh, or any type of report that comes in. We can also now confirm tornadoes based on uh, radar signatures. It's called a tornado debris signature. And we actually had that happen in Harnett County where we put a tornado warning out and soon after we actually could confirm the tornado's presence through a tornado debris signature. And then we can go up in severity and have a considerable tornado if that tornado is confirmed on the ground and approaching a city and also a catastrophic or a tornado emergency. And those are saved for the very, very high impact tornadoes. You know, usually the eventual EF3s, EF4s that are heading right toward a major population center and are likely to impact people's lives in a negative way. So it's kind of confusing, but the Weather Service has a lot of new additional ways that we can try to um, hint at what the severity level is uh, possible with some of the tornado events. Hey, Jamie, I just want to ask you something to kind of follow up with that. Uh, you know, Warren and I were out chasing Saturday, and, and the storm that we were on, the first tornado warning that we happened to see once we got in position, 
actually had the warning, uh, you know, the, the text label, this is a particularly dangerous situation, you know, the PDS, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that, that seems like it may be something new also with the, the tornado warnings. Uh, can, can you talk a little bit about that maybe? Yeah. So, um, I'm not, was that a tornado warning and then they've confirmed the tornado and yeah, yeah, uh, they, 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 the, the original warning was issued like four or five and then like five minutes later, ULM picked up a TDS, a de debris ball, and then they reissued it with the, the PDS wording. Yeah, so anytime that particularly dangerous situation arrives, it's basically a confirmed tornado headed toward a large population center. And anytime you see that, you have a high threat of loss of life. And that's just a way for us to encourage our partners like media personnel and Skyward Spotters, anybody else relaying information that, hey, we've confirmed this tornado, this is a serious situation, pay attention and take action. And the hope is if you haven't gone to your safe place like Scotty demonstrated earlier, you better be there now because this is impacting people downstream and headed right for you. It's an actual emergency, take cover. And, and Jamie, one thing, um a lot of folks uh, here in the south i guess anywhere honestly that there's tornado warnings there is, sometimes there's people that want to go out and see the visual tornado before they'll act um with, with this event that we had um not always tornadoes are not always visible so can you talk about maybe some of the different types of tornadoes we do see those supercell structures but a lot of uh, tornadoes we see here in the carolinas can be rain wrapped and so uh, maybe you can kind of tell folks why it's not always good to go out and look for them because if it's a rain wrap tornado, you're not going to see it anyway. That's right. Now, oftentimes, you know, we see these tornadoes, especially on some of the bigger networks out west where you can see the tornado from 25, 30 miles away. And those are really easy. There's no trees blocking your view. You're able to see the tornado at least until the curvature of the earth uh, uh, limits your visibility there. So anytime that situation's there, sure, go out and see if it's moving towards you and then see if you need to take action. You know, that's not a huge deal. But here we have a lot of things working against us. First of all, the tree cover. Uh, you're not going to be able to see a tornado more than, you know, a quarter mile away, most likely anywhere because of how amount of trees that we have in place and uh, just the, the fact that you're not able to see out very far. The second thing you're working against us is we have two moisture sources. And anytime we have severe weather taking place, both of those moisture sources are being tapped, which means any type of strong storm is going to be what we call HP supercell, especially any uh, with rotation. And most of those tornadoes that occur in HP supercells are rain wrapped. And that means the radar can see it, but most likely even a skyward spotter won't be able to see it until it's actually impacting them. And maybe every now and then there's a, there's a, a good timing and a good location for a spotter to be. But in reality, most of the time, you're not able to see into that storm at all. So a lot of it is just radar reflectivity that we're going off of. And that can be very challenging, especially along and east of the Appalachians. Definitely so. And, and that's something I tell a lot of kids when I do school visits is uh, you, you don't see those sort of like you see out in Oklahoma and Kansas. They, they just don't happen a lot around here. Uh, speaking of tornadoes, you guys had a few in your area. So you're going to. Kind of, uh, I think James has got some uh, some some slides that we can show of the the sur surveys. And after we do that, I, I want to talk about damage surveys because I know you was out on a few. Uh, but kind of talk to us about the uh, the couple of tornadoes in the Raleigh area over the the past weekend. Yeah, so, so just like the rest of North Carolina, we've been pretty busy, and we've actually had two week confirmed uh, EF zero tornadoes that touched down. The first one was Friday the twelfth. Uh, and that was uh, pretty close to Raleigh. It was just south of Wake County and Harnett County, just uh, toward the northern area. So if you guys know where um, Raven Rock State Park is, 
that tornado actually touched down just south of Raven Rock and progressed north and lifted just prior to getting to uh, just prior to getting to the Wake County boundary. Let me see if I can share a screen. I think you guys are able to see it now. Uh, and let me find the correct one. Here it is. So it's kind of tough to see on the map, but this green outline here, if you're able to see my cursor, that is actually the western periphery of Raven Rock State Park. And the tornado was very brief. It touched down progressed about uh, 4.8 miles across the Cape Fear River and lifted just prior to getting into Wake County. Um, this was actually very difficult to confirm on the ground. We could confirm it by a radar with that tornado debris signature. So we knew there was a tornado there and we knew there was debris lofted, but trying to get into the park, uh, trying to hike around and try to find the damage was very difficult for us to do. So other than a few downed trees and some talking to hikers who, who came across a couple of swaths of tree damage in there, that tornado debris signature represented on radar was really the only reason we were able to confirm this tornado uh, for certain. Uh, most of the time, especially 2007 prior before dual pole was installed, uh, some of these tornadoes would have gone unconfirmed just because of the technology. So it's really a blessing to have some of the technology that we're seeing. Uh, we also had another tornado in Northern uh, Harden, uh, I'm sorry, Northern Halifax County. That touched down in the early hours of Sunday, I believe, or was it Monday morning? It was Monday morning, I believe. And uh, there you go. Okay, great. Thank you for, for getting that. So that one touched down and was on the ground for a very brief amount of time. This was pretty cool because you could actually see that kind of right turn that the tornado took, just like you would expect a strong supercell to take. And this one was a very a difficult one to forecast, not only because it was so early, but because the entire event had gone along and we hadn't had one confirmed tornado occur. And keep in mind, we were in a pretty, uh, uh, we were in a tornado watch for almost, what, 12 hours that day or something crazy like like that so i think it was from about uh, two o'clock until 5 a.m that morning across central north carolina but it touched down and kind of did that little right hook that you would expect a supercell to take and unfortunately it did impact a structure um, it was kind of a manufactured home, so not the best built structure, but it, it ripped the roof off the, through the fence almost 100 yards into the field next door and also knocked down some trees uh, just prior to lifting uh, as it was coming up. And that one also had a faint possible tornado debris signature, but anytime you get a little farther away from the radar, it really takes a stronger storm to loft enough debris up to actually get a, a tornado to form. And Jamie, for those folks um, who may be watching tonight and they know a little bit about weather, but maybe not as much about radar. Is our radar? We have dual polarization now that it can actually depict trees, debris, whatever, and, and that's that tornado debris signature you're talking you're talking about. Yeah. So luckily, now that we not only have a vertical slice of the radar, we all have a horizontal slice, and that allows us to actually depict the shape of uh, what is in a storm so before we could kind of tell all right there's a lot of heavy rain in there maybe some hail because of how uh, pink those uh, signatures are and reflectivity um, but now you can actually depict when something isn't raindrop shaped or isn't hail drop shaped so anytime we can see that we can actually say hey that is actually human made objects like shingles or uh, other types of debris and anytime we see that in radar we know and it lines up with the couplet. We know there's likely a tornado on the ground and that can help us confirm a tornado warning. Or in some cases where they're very weak and, and very uh, quickly spun up, we can actually issue a warning based off of that. And that's never the ideal scenario, but sometimes that's what it comes to, especially in weak events like this. And, and Jamie, my last question, and if any of our panelists have anything else, definitely we can, we can add that. Um, 
you guys after the storm, I mean, obviously you're forecasting before the storm. Uh, you're now casting as the storm's taking place, but you also go at the days after and you send teams out and they look for damage and you have this whole toolkit and this, this program that you guys can look at damage to homes and trees and like that and determine the rating of the tornado. So uh, this is something we've mentioned, but something we've never really went into um, on this show. So uh, maybe for a minute or two, can you kind of tell us, walk us through what a damage survey, what you all do, uh, maybe some of the things you look for and how you determine the strength of these uh, tornadoes, uh, how long they're on the ground and things like that. Yeah, so a survey process very much starts inside of the office. So first we need to depict where a tornado may have occurred. Sometimes we find our tornado warnings and see if we find any damage within those warnings. Um, or we can get reports from spotters or media partners or, or even uh, um, you know somebody out there or emergency managers that say, hey, I have a swath of damage here that's a little suspicious. Can you come out and check it out? And anytime we have enough staffing to do so, we try to get there out as out there as fast as possible. We'll go out, and the first thing we do is try to mark where that damage begins, and whether or not once we go from the beginning point toward the end point, if the damage is pretty succinct and in a straight line with a convergent pattern instead of actually a divergent pattern. Uh, because if we're able to determine if it's convergent, that is a tornado type swirl. So anytime you have a swirling type motion and a lot of times trees are the best way to figure this out um, the swirl will really tell you if it's tornadic versus if it's a divergent pattern we can very much have straight line wind event and we talked about this earlier straight line winds can be just as damaging and just as uh, intense as tornado events so a lot of people get upset with us once we conclude a survey and it will straight line winds and not tornadoes but either way you're in just as much danger that's why we say it's even in severe thunderstorms make sure you're inside make sure you're away from windows because it, a 50 or a 70 to 80 mile an hour wind gust that broadsides your house or broadsides your car is going to do just as much damage as an ef0 or ef1 tornado I know Evan's got a question here, but I was wanting to kind of follow up with what you were talking about, Jamie. I've been on a few with uh, the weather service at GSP who, who's come into our area. And we've been in a, a Boy Scout um, kind of camp before with an event. And one of the biggest tools that you guys use, because you may be standing in the middle of the forest and these trees, is a compass. you got to be able to tell the direction. You may look, you may be in this big old field with all these trees and, and you don't know if they're convergent, divergent, because it's all craziness. So you've got to actually look at your compass and you have to almost make a little map and, and draw arrows the way the trees are leaning and stuff. So it can be pretty confusing. I've been on a few of those and I'm just like, man, this it, it's more difficult, uh, I think, than what the general public thinks it is. Oh, you're exactly right. There's so much that goes into it. And even if you do confirm a tornado, uh, it's you really need structures to get hit to be able to give it proper damage. But no, you're exactly right. So a lot of times we're out there with our compass with a paper map. I mean, you know, and some of us have iPads, but most of us put the iPads down and start sketching it out because that's so much easier uh, to depict. But you're able to at least plot the points, figure out how the damage is dispersed but also what type of structures are damaged because the enhanced Fujita scales based on what gets damaged. So you can have the strongest winds, strongest tornadoes uh, that has ever happened on earth, but if it just goes through a cornfield, all you can really give it is an EF0 or EF1 rating because the damage indicator, we call them DIs, uh, only allow for that amount because there was nothing else damaged. Or vice versa, you could have a borderline tornado that ends up hitting a school, which is a well-built structure, 
and producing quite a bit of damage. But if that had occurred a half mile east in an open field, it would have likely been an EF0 instead of an EF2 or EF3. So a lot of other factors play into it, but we usually get out there with a pencil and some paper and start plotting points with GPS and trying to figure out, all right, what occurred, what could have caused it, and what the intensity is and where did it end? Because all four of those are the main parts of a damage survey. Jamie, I wanted to ask a question. So once the storms start you know, uh, firing up, a lot of times you guys do a lot of outreach to the public, but TV meteorologists also have a big outreach. How do you communicate and interact with them um, when the storms are really posing a significant threat to the public? Yeah, at the National Weather Service, we're well aware our reach is very limited, and it's important for us to have really good partnerships with the media outlets especially, because they're the pros, they're the ones that can communicate this scientific jargon that we have still highly utilized in the Weather Service to the, for what, uh, in, in a way, that the general public can understand and get that message out in a succinct manner. So we really rely on the media partnerships, especially here in Raleigh, but all across the Weather Service, uh, for being able to disseminate that information because we can't do it alone. So those partnerships are really important to us. And we have an internal chat system that a lot of times meteorologists will use even prior to sending out a warning or right after they send out the warning to say, hey, this storm looks menacing. The message we want to send out to the public is this. And for instance, this was a unique event that came through, especially Saturday or Sunday night into Monday, because most of the event occurred well after dark. And we saw that coming about 24 to 36 hours out, and we were highly confident of that. So we wanted to make sure everybody knew, hey, sleep with your cell phones on. Do not turn your cell phones off at night like you may normally, because that flash flood warning or that tornado warning that we have to issue needs to be able to wake you up and get you into your safe place. So being able to spread that word to our media partners on a Sunday of all times is really important for us. And they did a fantastic job across central North Carolina, including the Triangle region and the Triad region, which are our main uh, markets, um, trying to disseminate that information. It was. Well, Jamie, uh, we're going to transition just a little bit. Uh, we're going to bring in Chris and Warren, who uh, the day before all this craziness happened in our area, uh, the tornado threat was over Louisiana and Mississippi. So, uh, Chris, I'll kind of let you lead the way with the next conversation and um, and talk about what you and Warren experienced over the weekend. Yeah, absolutely, Scotty. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, gosh, it was such a crazy weekend. I, I was uh, uh, looking just a few minutes ago and saw for the totals for the weekend for um, Saturday and Sunday is going to be 62 tornadoes as of right now with 31 tornadoes occurring on each day. And that was from the Storms Prediction Center. So uh, that's pretty good data. Um, you know, going into it Saturday was, uh, it had the makings of a, a really high-end event. And, and in my opinion, which may be controversial to some, I, I think it really verified as, as a high-end event. And uh, and uh, so you know, me and Warren got the, got the chit-chatting and we decided we were gonna chase this uh, thing together. And so. Uh, we took off uh, to Mississippi about uh, about 6:30, 7 a.m. Saturday morning, and uh, drove all the way down I-20 right to the Mississippi River, and and uh, stopped over in Tallulah, Mississippi, as uh, storms began to fire, and um, you know just kind of analyzed the atmosphere, see what was going on, looked at the mesoanalysis, and saw we were sitting right on the warm front, and uh, it, it, it you know from there I'll, I'll let Warren come in and, and, and talk a little bit more about it. Yeah, I think one of the things that stood out to that uh, first storm that we were on, it kind of had this, you know, blob shape at the beginning, but you could definitely tell that it was probably going to be the dominant storm, at least uh, for the next dur little duration of time uh, near Alexandria, Louisiana. And I think the thing that really stood out to me was 
how prolific that was. And I think uh, Chris can uh, talk on that too, is just, uh, you know, I've, I've chased several uh, years out west in the Great Plains and have seen some pretty intense lightning, but this was definitely, uh, definitely uh, one of the more intense lightning barrages I've seen. Um, you know, the constant rumble, there was never a moment in time that passed that uh, you, you didn't hear thunder. Um, and uh, just just the amount of, of, of lightning that, that was present in the storm and that we were able to capture, um, you know, with our with our video was pretty incredible. I mean, you could just focus on one portion of the sky for less than five seconds and get three or four lightning bolts, you know. And so that, that was something that really uh, stood out to me. And then uh, the uh, RFD surge that we experienced was uh, definitely intense, you know, truck rocking back and forth and uh, everything and then seeing kind of people blindly drive into uh, into that circulation and then just uh, several hundred feet in front of us, there's, you know, snap power line poles uh, for almost a half a mile, it seemed, you know, and which would line up pretty well with what the uh, the survey was for that particular tornado near Newelton. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was definitely like Chris said, it looked like it had the, the making of kind of one of those you know, big high end days during during the day, but uh, the LLJ kicked in, you know, after nightfall. And that's kind of when we saw the uh, on the way home, actually, is when we saw that crazy radar signature from the uh, Hamilton, Mississippi tornado. And uh, that was I mean, that was that was pretty intense. One of the most uh, crazy radar returns, I guess, I've seen in, in a really long time, you know, since uh, 2013. Um, but it was, it was a great experience. And uh, I'm glad we made the trip out there. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was just, uh, like I said, I think the, the biggest thing that stood out to me was, was probably the lightning. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, bringing Jamie on that, you know, some, some of the, some of the I guess, uh, research that the, from some of the folks out of the SPC and other folks in academia has shown, you know, you get this huge uptick in, in, in cloud-to-ground lightning strikes before tornado genesis occurs. And, and, you know, Warren can attest to this. On Saturday, and I'm, I'm in the same boat, I've seen a lot of thunderstorms in my life, and I have never – even came close to seeing that amount of lightning. It was unbelievable. And, uh, you know, is that, so, is that something that, you know, we typically see in the Southeast here? Yeah, so there's been a lot of uh, good studies, especially actually from a former Virginia Tech student, Paul Miller. He was one of the first to come out with a little paper on this. But uh, there's a lightning jump that often precedes some, some aspect of severe weather, and that could be wind reports. That could also end up being a tornado report close eye on a very little bit of heads really be monitoring but anytime you see a growing updraft this storm is about to, to be a, a bad one and it's something you need to at least have a special weather statement out on or eventually a warning uh, especially if the hail growth area is a little bit tall enough to actually get some uh, good sized hail out of it and a lot of times anytime you get enough reflectivity above that minus 10 degrees celsius layer you're going to start having that lightning uptick. And anytime you get a nice surge of that, the updraft is healthy. And that's what causes that uptick in lightning because you're introducing more ice crystals to it. They rub together, that stack of electricity uh, occurs, and poof, you've got that lightning jump. And oftentimes you have a growing updraft, a lightning jump, and then severe weather occurs either in the downdraft area or sometimes the tornadic zone of a thunderstorm. Yeah, and, and that was something absolutely we noticed. And like you said, with the, with the growing updraft, you know, 
a lot of people, especially in the storm chaser community joke about, you know, uh, deep South being the quote unquote, the jungle and stuff like that. But really, honestly, the Mississippi Delta, you know, 20 miles on each side of the river is Kansas. It really is. And, and I, I kind of laugh when I see people talk about the jungle when I know I'm going to the Delta. So <laughs> it's like, you know, I, I'm going to have great visibility, but Warren and I were 20 miles from the base of the storm, uh, you know, for the better part of the afternoon, watching it develop as it, as it approached us. And, and before that lightning tick really got going, you could see the established updraft base with a big, uh, you know, big, big, nice area of forward flank downdraft and, and with, you know, rapid rising scud going into the, into the storm. And, and then it just like, you know, the floodgates opened up with lightning and it just never stopped. And uh, I'm going to pull up GR2 here. I'm going to share my screen. So give, give me one second. I've actually got the radar data from it um, archived here. So we were uh, we were sitting down here just uh, south of or just uh, west of St. Joseph. And, uh, you know, as this storm approaches, I'm going to back up a couple couple frames here. This is at, uh, at 3.34 in the afternoon. And so we're sitting here and we're, sitting, we're watching this storm. And I'm going to just go forward in time to about uh, 3.50. 350, you're starting to see some rotation right here, right right where my uh, mouse is at. And it's like, hmm, what's happening here? And uh, let's go forward about another 10 minutes. In 10 minutes, uh, pardon the, the purple data here. It's, this is uh, called a range folding. And it's an artifact from incomplete radar data because it's so far away from the radar site. But inside that, you can definitely see a, a, a very well-defined couplet and, and not even a matter of really you know, 10, 15 minutes. And, you know, after that happened at four or five, they issued a tornado warning and they come back, I think, uh, four or five minutes later and actually issued another tornado warning with a particularly dangerous situation because the, the University of uh, Louisiana Monroe actually picked up a tornado debris signature on their radar. And by that time, we were heading north toward Newelton. And, uh, you know, as this tornado approached Newelton, you can just see the, the circulation just it, it was big. It was re re really big. But um. Yeah, so you know, we pulled off the road just south of it, and we got blasted by the RFD, and uh, we probably have winds of about 100. James, uh, you got that video of our RFD winds here? I'll stop uh, the screen Chris, share. Your footage is not available. Okay, that's fine. No big deal. But, um, yeah, we we, uh, we were getting just hammered by some winds. And, and uh, you know, looking at storm survey, uh, Warren doesn't know this yet, but I was just looking. Uh, the, the National Weather Service actually has confirmed eight tornadoes from that one storm in less than one hour. And that includes, uh, I think, two EF2s. Uh, the rest were EF1s, and I think two EF0s. So wow. that's it, it's that's incredible. Awesome. Yeah, that, that radar imagery was was really cool because right before the couplet really formed, you saw that bounded weak echo region, echo, uh, weak echo region start to form. And that's usually a nice precursor to at least a, a sustained updraft and, and a split updraft and downdraft region. So anytime you see something like that, your your eye as a severe weather forecaster, especially in a weather service office that needs to get a warning drawn up, uh, is certainly going off. So that's really cool. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, just uh, real quick before we go to our break, you're talking about uh, you know the the high precipitation stuff that we get in the southeast. I'm going to be really clear here. I, I I don't take chances when I chase, although I will. I do like to get close. I I, I like, to, like to see what's happening on those small scales. Warren and I saw that tornado for about 20 seconds all day long. That We saw a tornado for all the 20 seconds of our trip because the rest of it was wrapped up in rain and you could not see anything. And that was even on the flat land. And I get a lot of people that ask me, you know, can I see the tornado coming? How do you, what do we look for? And, you know, the, the best mode of advice, especially in the Southeast, don't go looking for it if you don't know what you're looking for. 
because, uh, you know, you get, you get in that RFT, especially well, quote unquote, the bear's cage surrounding the tornado circulation. Uh, that's a, that's a recipe for disaster. And I just don't want anybody to do that. And James, I'll kick it over to you or, or next I got it. Yep. I got it. So, uh, yeah, Chris, thank you for that. You and Warren, uh, um, some amazing uh, footage that, that you all captured. Um, let's kind of transition into what's to come. Uh, we, we face another severe weather. Um, there's another severe weather threat this week, uh, looking more towards like a Friday event. So uh, for the next couple of minutes, let's, let's kind of discuss that. It, it's kind of uh, another uh, setup where it's kind of really dependent on timing as to who sees the severe weather and who doesn't. Um, right now, much of eastern North Carolina is in an, an enhanced region, and uh, the slight region is more over. Uh, thank you, James. I was getting ready to look at it. So you can see the enhanced region basically along Interstate 95 into the east um, and even over northeast South Carolina. And then uh, the majority of the rest of North Carolina and South Carolina in that slight risk. So um, that is uh, definitely could fluctuate um, either way as uh, as we kind of get hell, uh, nail in on a, a time of, of when these storms are going to develop. So, uh, Chris, I know uh, you were talking in our internal chat a little bit ago. This might be a local chase day for you. So what are you seeing for you and uh, your followers there in South Carolina? Yeah, absolutely, Scotty. So, you know, looking at some of the the, the, the NAM, uh, especially because, you know, it's convection allowed model. And, and the European this morning was really interesting. But, uh, you know, looking at those, they show a broken line of storms approaching the, the western part of South Carolina, and, you know, mid-morning through about noon on uh on Friday, and and it, what's really interesting that the name was picking up on is possibly like a a meso load developing uh, along the uh, I guess I eighty five corridor in the Upstate, and it, while the confidence is really low in that happening right now because it's you know we're forty eight hours away from the event and that's got such a small scale thing, you know if it does if that does develop it would greatly increase the the probabilities or at least the chances. Uh, for for a few more tornadoes across the the Midlands and possibly the Upstate and, and really the 95 corridor, um, but basically most of South Carolina, if that were to verify. But uh, you know, other than that, uh, about one o'clock to two o'clock, storms should start to push east of Columbia, and, and as they approach that enhanced area, if there's any kind of daytime heating that's going to allow for the the destabilization of the the surface. Uh, it, it could be a really long day for folks up at the Raleigh forecast office. But, uh, you know, with the system that's approaching, uh, one of the biggest things is the wind field. And, and um, uh, about 18,000 feet, 500 millibar, we like to call it, uh, there's, a, there's a big negatively tilted trough with a speed max. That's going to be approaching, if not more than 100 knots, which, you know, climatology, from the climatology standpoint, is uh, near record levels. And when you start to see that kind of wind aloft, especially with dry air loft that can get mixed down to the surface. And uh, that, that just kind of gets your attention as somebody that, that, that forecasts and knows the weather. So, you know, for Friday, for my folks in South Carolina, definitely be weather aware. Um, the biggest time for uh, any kind of severe weather, probably 10 a.m. for the western part of the state and, and, you know, points from Columbia all the way to Myrtle Beach through the rest of the afternoon and, until dark, until, and, you know, this stuff just pushes out of here. And, and Jamie, as Chris alluded to, you guys, I know have got, uh, all of your eyes watching uh, what could be coming up. So 
part of your area, even in that enhanced risk. So, uh, what are your what is the communication been like from from your uh, up uh, updates uh, to your uh, forecast area there, Jamie? Yeah, it looks like we're going to be under under the gun again on Friday and into Friday evening. Uh, the biggest differences I think with this system compared to this last weekend system is uh, it looks like it's going to be mainly an eastern event. We're a little bit earlier on timing than what we saw uh, with the last event, so it looks like it's going to be coming through, uh, especially the Triangle region right around peak heating. And anytime you see something like that, that does not bode well. Uh, what will be interesting, and, and uh, we just alluded to it, is that where that meso low really sets up, because right now, at least with the off run on the GFS. It's showing that meso low kind of forming over upstate South Carolina and pushing just east of the triangle. And anytime you have that, you have that enhanced shear factor. And and boy, looking at some of the model soundings, we're talking for the uh, low level shear, which is what you really start looking at when it comes to uh, possible tornadic activity. You're looking at some impressive model values. So anytime you see that, that's going to give any warning forecaster a nightmare, uh, especially leading into a peak heating type event where you know the cells are going to have plenty of, uh, of moisture to go with and a lot of heating to actually help fuel it on. Uh, some limiting factors that I've seen, there's going to be some prefrontal convection. We have strong southerly warm air infection. You know, that's that southerly flow that really moistens us up ahead of the forcing. And anytime we have that in the forecast, which seems to be 95% of the time, you're going to have a lot of clouds in the area. You're going to have some showers that are going to work some of that instability down. So, again, this looks like a high shear, lower cape event. I wouldn't say low cape, but a lower cape event with ML cape values, which is what you look for for severe weather oftentimes or a sustained severe weather. Um, between that, you know, 1,000 to 1,500, which is enough to get some strong cells. So this is definitely uh, concerning. Uh, would I cancel plans on Friday? Not necessarily, but at least I would have a backup plan to make sure I'm inside and close enough to uh, safe shelter because it may be required for many of us across uh, central uh, and eastern North Carolina. I think this is going to be mainly a triangle region, which is Raleigh for those who may not be from this area, eastward type event, but really anywhere across North Carolina and South Carolina should be prepared because little changes in timing and a little changes in the wind field you could easily have the threat swing anywhere from uh, the triad westward all the way east into uh, the Outer Banks. So it'll be very interesting uh, to see how this unfolds. It will be. And um, for, for Western North Carolina, for those followers who uh, are in that area, it, it's, it's, ugh, I can't spit it out. It's depending on timing. Uh, right now it looks like uh, late morning, maybe early afternoon, and like Jamie was talking about, uh, some of the short range models actually showing a little bit of shower activity developing early Friday morning. So if that's the case, that could really hurt uh, or hamper the severe weather threat, at least here for the western part of the state. So uh, it's something we'll watch. But if we shift, if that front slows down, maybe two, three hours, uh, it could definitely be a, a whole new ball game. So uh, it's something that we will watch. But uh, as of right now, most of the area either in an enhanced or slight risk. So uh, that's enough confidence to say that there could be one or two uh, strong to severe thunderstorms anywhere in the Carolinas. So uh, it's something, as Jamie said, don't cancel your plans, but it's something to keep mindful of as uh, as you go into your good friday so uh chris i think you had one more thing to add before uh i want to switch over to evan and talk about the back side of this storm yeah just, just one quick thing and it's just mainly for us but uh, you know one thing we'll be watching uh friday as this thing approaches is the, the pressure falls um you know the beauregard tornado we saw you know two millibar per hour pressure falls 
uh, you know, preceding, preceding that tornado. And uh, Saturday with the tornado that uh, me and Warren was on, uh, the Tallulah Airport recorded a nine millibar pressure drop in, in less than, uh, I think, uh, three hours, two hours, something like that. It was, it was a, it was a really, uh, four hours, sorry. Nine millibars in four hours, that's a pretty significant pressure drop. And so when you start to see little clues like that, it's just stuff we pay attention to. Just kind of giving you hints. Definitely so. Um, so for severe weather, before I get to Evan, severe weather, be sure to, to uh, keep an eye on us and uh, we can uh, break into coverage if we need to on, on Friday. And uh, definitely check out uh, the Raleigh Forecast Office, the Columbia, Greenville-Spartanburg, Wilmington Forecast Office, Blacksburg, and Morristown as we uh, as we monitor this uh, severe weather. So Evan, on the back side of this front, we could actually see some cold air move into the area, and some of our friends in the high country may see a few snowflakes falling. Yeah, Scotty. So it's the time of year where uh, snow is a really fickle thing in West North Carolina, uh, and it does happen typically every year. Uh, there's been snowfall on top of Mount Mitchell in May for the last four years straight. Um, so this is a thing that happens. Um, and I, Personally, I've chased snow up above 6,000 feet several times in May uh, and late April. So what we're looking at um, is as the storms are exiting Eastern Carolina, um, through uh, this Friday night, the snow will be beginning to move in. The, the temperatures will be dropping across western North Carolina and really across the high peaks. Um, and it is possible, especially as you go into the day Saturday, actually, we could see some uh, daytime snowflakes uh, up above uh, 5,000, really, really 6,000 feet. Um, I, honestly, I wouldn't be shocked to see a little bit of accumulation up in those areas. Um, very wet snow, as, as, as it always is, as late in the season. Um, big fat flakes. So it'd be great for anyone that wants to head up there and get some cool footage. And uh, that's a key to James saying, hey, James, we'll have our uh, our webcams watching for that. Like so, this one? Yeah, like that one. Uh, Jamie, anything else you want to add as we uh, kind of close out this uh, severe weather talk? Yeah, so being from the Blacksburg area, I'm, I'm very glad I no longer have to deal with that upslope style or at least western mount, uh, wet mountain type snows even this late in the season. So uh, you guys keep it out there. But I certainly wouldn't sleep even uh, east of the mountains on Saturday. Sometimes we have these closed upper lows. We end up having these, you know, small showers that can produce, uh, you know, several sometimes inches of small hail that fall in it, uh, as these upper lows start transversing east. And um, so certainly not looking at a widespread severe event uh, on Saturday or Sunday, and it won't impress the SBC most likely, but don't be surprised if you have other types of frozen precip falling, uh, especially Saturday afternoon when you get a little bit of heating and you have enough shear and moisture to get a little sustained cells that can sometimes march uh, northeast and, and drop a little bit of hail as they go. So don't sleep on that. And the one last thing I'll mention going back to Friday, if that's all right, is and one thing that I'm really concerned about is we're going to be near record precipitable water values. So uh, at this point, I flush the toilet twice and it floods the downstream rivers. So I'm a little concerned <laughs> at additional flooding, uh, especially central and eastern North Carolina, because we're still saturated from Florence. I mean, it, to be honest, and we've been so wet since Florence, uh, we just haven't dried out. So uh, while that's been great for the drought talk, it unfortunately means every time we get a shower, an uh, inch or two in an hour or two hours, we end up having significant flooding and we still have flooding going on right now in the area rivers from this past weekend. So uh, don't sleep on that. And uh, these storms, as they come across, they'll be short lived, but they can easily dump one to two inch per hour rates. And before you know it, you've got flash flooding issues, too. I think uh, James has got a news story coming out about some flooding that happened in, in Western North Carolina. So, uh, Jamie, before uh, we go into our news topic and I know you've got to uh, get ready for work. So 
Um, if you can stick around for the news, that's fine. If you need to go, that's fine too. But if uh, folks want to follow you and get some information about the uh, the forecast in Raleigh, uh, what are some of the best ways that uh, our people can do that? Yeah, so certainly uh, no matter where you're listening, go to weather.gov and, and type your address in and that'll take you to your local office. That is updated no matter the weather, no matter the time of the year. That is updated at least four times a day when it comes to the forecast. And that's your local experts uh, in the weather service. So certainly go with that. Also, follow your local weather service Twitter and Facebook accounts. Uh, that has become more and more, and, and other offices are actually going to be testing Facebook Live events, especially during uh, some of the more impactful weather, including ours later on this spring. So certainly give those a follow. And if you want to follow me, um, I usually post a lot about weather, and every now and then you know, <laughs> I post about the cat jersey, even though uh, I know that may be controversial in Carolina. Um, but if you want to follow me, I'm at WXBone, that's W-X-B-O-N-E on Twitter. And uh, feel free to give me a follow, and I'll try to follow you back. I know you live in Raleigh. I, I just want to know how much of the stink eye have you got wearing that this week? <laughs> I'll, I'll let you know tomorrow night after I go to game four and we go up three to one. Well, if I may get back to work afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good. Jamie, as always, thank you for uh, for joining us. And um, I, I know James's ears perked up when he said you guys are going to start doing some Facebook Live because he's like, That's content, right. content, content. I love content. So uh, we look forward to those as well. Um, like I said, stick around if you want to, but if you got to hop, uh, we certainly uh, understand that too. So James, I know uh, we've had a lot of severe weather, but we've also had some other things going on in the weather world. So I will toss it to you as you've got the weather news for us. Thank you, Scotty. That's right. I'm going to get a, a shirt that says News Junkie, and I'm going to get one that says Content Junkie. Uh, we did uh, have a little bit of a headline here related to uh, flooding that actually comes from uh, Jamie's neck, uh, neck of the Woods, reported here by uh, WRAL. Boy Scouts rescued after floodwaters wash out Nash County roads. Uh, this was a group of about 130 scouts who traveled from Greenville. Uh, I'm not sure if it's North Carolina or South Carolina. And we're at Camp Charles when uh, Saturday's heavy rains approached. And uh, about 2.30 in the afternoon, emergency workers showed up. And as the article says here, uh, each Boy Scout was plucked to safety with the help of a canoe. So there's a real-life example of uh, how flooding can uh, play out and affect you. Speaking of flooding and speaking of severe storms, take a look at the picture of this boat. Yeah, your eyes are not deceiving you. That is a boat dangling off a dam in Polk County here in North Carolina. Again, as a result of this weekend severe weather, the boat owner said they had secured it firmly, but it somehow got loose. And uh, at last check there, the uh, town of Columbus Fire Department was working to lower the lake levels so that they could retrieve that boat before it, well, toppled over. Did they get I it? think they got it. I think they got it today, James. I saw some video of, uh, of a little tugboat getting out there and pulling it away from the dam. So was it I saying, think I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. <laughs> I think it's back to, uh, back to safety for that boat. And I know that boat owner and the insurance company is probably happy for that. Uh, probably so. Last but not least, the weather that we had here in the southeast also impacted the mid-atlantic and the northeast this video came to us from the manchester police in new jersey and you know how we're always talking about the uh, severity of down power lines and we say don't go near down power lines even if you think they're off well here's what happened when one linesman was working to clean up a scene with power wires he thought had been de-energized watch carefully here when he finds out that that wasn't the case 
because this becomes a very scary and dangerous situation. Watch that power line there falling now, and it catches fire, and you can see the man there in yellow in his safety gear running to safety. So a very scary situation where down power line instantly caught fire. And of course, we're also dealing here with water, so this whole area would have been a power hazard, Scotty. Wow, I don't know what to say after that. That's crazy. Uh, one other breaking news, and this come in uh, just a little bit ago. Uh, WLTX uh, Chief Meteorologist Jim Gandy, a friend of our show uh, there in Columbia, South Carolina, is retiring after 44 years of meteorology. His last day will be May 31st, so uh, we wish Jim and his wife a happy retirement. I know Jim's got many plans to travel and uh, kick back and relax after the crazy weather uh, that's been in Columbia over the past several years. So we wish Jim and his wife uh, well as uh, he is retiring at the end of May. So um, that is all. Uh, Warren, I want to bring you in before we close. Um, any new things going on with the Sirens Project? And uh, kind of tell us about uh, what you all have been doing uh, here in the past couple of weeks. Yeah, so, um, you know, our uh, Great Plains trip for, uh, you know, our, our chasecation, as we call it, um is uh may 24th through june 2nd so we've been uh, preparing for that quite a bit so um we're adding two additional uh drones to the fleet this year um uh, both are ready-made rc uh strix goblin uh, type aircraft they're uh, plank type aircraft um and we've also been working on our uh, long-range uh video and uh long-range control systems and we finished up uh, earlier last week our uh, um, homemade uh, long-range tracker so that uh, gives uh, gives us the time to, to make sure that the uh, signal is on and so uh, I've been working on that and uh, we'll start building the the second aircraft here pretty shortly and then uh, do some test flying before we uh, hit the road for great uh, the Great Plains so I have a lot of work to do and not a lot of time to do it but uh, I feel like this year we're probably the most prepared that we've been. Um, so really, really looking forward to that. that. That's awesome to hear. And I know Evan and, and, and Chris and I are planning to go out west chasing uh, towards the end of May, early June. So we're hoping yeah. that our, our paths will collide somehow around there. They will. Can, uh, they will. For a day or so. Hey, be sure to keep an eye out for the Hokie Storm Chasers. And uh, rumor has it this year I'll be making a return visit out to the Great Plains around that same time frame. So nice. Well, Jamie, Jamie, you have my contact info. I see uh, dinner somewhere out in the middle of Kansas. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. All right, guys. Well, uh, we appreciate you joining us here on the Carolina Weather Group tonight. I want to tell you next week we have an off week. We're going to let Evan study for his finals. So <laughs> it is a uh, finals week. Uh, Evan, are you ready for that? You, you, oh, I hope so. I really need to do well. So I'm going to say yes. <laughs> All right, buddy. Well, we are off next week for spring break. Everybody needs a little bit of a break. So uh, we will probably air some uh, rerun of uh, some of our uh, best shows so far this year. And uh, we will be back on Wednesday, May 1st with Keith Carson, who uh, used to be at the Weather Channel and now is forecasting up in Maine. He will be our guest. So uh, we look forward to having Keith with us. And we hope you all have a great Easter and a great Easter weekend. And um, be sure to keep your eye on the weather on Friday as uh, we see the potential for severe storms. And if anything does break out, we will be here to cover it all for you. So for everyone here at the Carolina Weather Group, we hope you have a great rest of the week and a great weekend. And we'll see you back here on Wednesday, May the 1st.